The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 63. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host, and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. The last few weeks have been challenging. I continue to say it, uh, and it continues to be true. So much information is coming out from the government, from webinars, all over the place, talking about all things coronavirus and coronavirus legislation. We've gotten guidance in various stages from the Department of Labor, guidance from the IRS, guidance from state departments of labor and unemployment insurance issues. It's time to hopefully start to marshal all of this together and get a real handle on what all of this means. So the United States Department of Labor actually just finally issued its final regulations to implement the Federal Family uh, First Coronavirus Act, which has the paid sick leave and FMLA amendments that are applying during this coronavirus period. The regulations were just enacted. They're final regulations, even though they're really referred to as temporary regulations, as I'll get to in a minute, since they're only applicable during this calendar year, 2020. But what I wanted to do is for those of you who are having trouble keeping up with what the answers are to which questions and where we are in the different stages of the legislation, I wanted to come up with my top 10 questions that you all likely have about the new regulations that have finally been released by the Department of Labor. So here are my 10 questions, and hopefully these are now addressing the issues that you are all grappling with, again, with regard to the federal legislation. A couple of points worth mentioning. These regulations are effective April 1st, 2020 until December 31st, 2020. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks, the coming months, to see if, depending on circumstances of the world, whether the legislation uh, comes out that will increase and continue this past the end of the year. But for now, when we're talking about federal paid sick leave and uh, federal FMLA amendments, these are just applicable until the end of this calendar year 2020. Also keep in mind that as a result of that, there is no entitlement that employees have to any reimbursement or other financial compensation at the end of this year for uh, December 31st if there is accrued but unused leave time under the PSL, which is the paid sick leave, or the FMLA amendments. If it's not used by December 31st, you don't get paid for it. You don't get paid for these new benefits upon termination either. And there may be more versions of all of this coming out. As I said, I can only guarantee that I'm giving you a top 10 list of questions based on the most recent new regulations issued. Uh, if there are new versions, and we expect that there will be, 
in the coming weeks, in the coming months. In fact, Congress in Washington is already busy negotiating a fourth package. Uh, we will continue to summarize those through our Cozen O'Connor Task Force, as well as on this podcast. So, let's get started with my 10 questions. Question 1, what employers are covered? Well, you've been hearing a lot about it. Private employers, if you have fewer than 500 employees, you are covered here. The 500 employee threshold was very much an arbitrary one, and I can tell you that there are people in Washington who are suggesting that in the next piece of legislation, the next package that comes out, that 500 employee threshold may be gone. Back on March 30th, uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi indicated that, in fact, that was one of the issues that they had been discussing. We'll see what happens. Hopefully, or maybe it becomes a moot point. But for now, private employers with fewer than 500 employees are covered here. You're only going to count uh, employees that are based in the United States. And you pretty much are going to count everybody on that payroll except for independent contractors or those employees who are on furlough already. The one other little wrinkle about this 500 employee threshold, what if your company has various related entities? You've got subsidiaries, parents, affiliated companies. How do I know who to consider? Well, as you've heard all around, there are a couple of tests that you're going to look to to see if you need to aggregate all of the employees from these various other entities to meet the 500 employee threshold. There is the joint employer test under the federal FLSA, and there is the integrated employer test under the FMLA. Uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds of both of those tests, but I do just want to put it on your radar if it's not already there, that if you have multiple entities that may be considered to be joint employers, or you have multiple entities that may be considered to be integrated employers, you're going to look a little closer at these tests, at the operations of these entities to determine whether all of them can and should be considered and counted for purposes of meeting this 500 employee threshold. The last thing I'll say about this issue is you also want to make sure you're not doing this in a vacuum. If you have taken a position with regard to your company and its related entities prior to the coronavirus period, whether for purposes of FMLA coverage or otherwise, if you have taken a position on the joint employer test or on the integrated employer test, and if you continue to expect to be taking a position on that after the coronavirus period ends, you want to make sure you're being consistent. You're not likely going to be able to get away with taking a position now for purposes of this coronavirus legislation regarding how many employees you do have for coverage purposes that is inconsistent with what position you previously took or what position you might take in the future. So that's for private employers, public agencies, or any other non-private entities. If you've got one or more employees, you are going to be covered uh, under this legislation. There is a small employer exemption if you have fewer than 50 employees. Uh, only for the school closing or child care unavailability um, reasons for leave under this new coronavirus legislation, and I'll get to the various reasons in a moment. If for that reason, and if you have fewer than 50 employees, if making the leave payments would jeopardize the viability of your business, and if an authorized officer of the company documents certain specific findings related to that lack of viability, 
then you can perhaps take advantage of that small employer limited exemption. So that's question one, what employers are covered? Which leads very nicely into question two, what employees are protected? And again, I'm going to be referring to the dual sections of this coronavirus legislation and the new DOL regs, paid sick leave on the one side, FMLA on the other side, because for some of these questions, the answers are going to be different depending on which portion of the legislation you're talking about. For the paid sick leave, all full-time and part-time employees are protected regardless of how long they have worked. There is an exclusion for uh, those employees who are actual health care providers or emergency responders. You as an employer of those individuals can exclude them from coverage. Of course, like everything else, there are severe and significant uh, terms of art, such as what does it mean to be a health care provider or an emergency responder. So pay careful attention to whether you meet those defined terms if you want to take advantage of that exclusion. For purposes of the FMLA amendments, uh, there are two buckets of employees who are covered. Those employees if uh, who were employed for at least 30 calendar days prior to the day their leave began, as well as any employees who were terminated on or after March 1st, 2020, if they had worked for 30 of the 60 prior calendar days, and if they are subsequently rehired or reemployed by the company, they then too can be entitled to the benefits under the FMLA. Subject to the same exclusion I just mentioned before, that uh, a company can exclude employees who are actual healthcare providers or emergency responders. Now here, uh, it's important to focus a little bit on this FMLA issue. Unlike the paid sick leave portion, which was its own, in some respects, standalone legislation, the FMLA amendments are just that. They are amendments to what is already an existing FMLA scheme. Because of that, there are prior threshold coverage issues that have to be complied with if your employee is still looking to take FMLA for one of the prior non-coronavirus related reasons. What's important to understand is that this new threshold that I just gave you, the 30 calendar days or certain employees who have been terminated but are rehired, that does not supplement or that does not take the place of the prior thresholds for already existing FMLA leave. This threshold, this new employee coverage, only pertains to the portions of the FMLA amendments that have just been enacted during this coronavirus period. So it's important to keep that distinction in mind and understand that we have not replaced the FMLA that already exists. This is in addition to, and for specific coronavirus-related reasons, in addition to what already exists in the FLA. F, I'm sorry, in the FMLA. So, question three, what situations trigger the PSL and the FMLA amendments if we are an employer that's covered and if we're dealing with an employee that is protected? So let's first look at the PSL. And I'm going to give you the reasons, there are six of them, why leave can be taken under the PSL. And I'm going to refer to them by number because in answering some questions later on, they will refer to the specific number, the specific reason um, that PSL may be used. So I'm going to start off by giving you the list in number order. 
So there are six reasons under the new regulations why PSL can be taken. So an employee can take paid sick leave if he or she is unable to work or telework because of any of the following reasons. Number one, the individual is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order. And there is a but-for test. This does not, and there's been a lot of confusion about this, but the new regulations at least try to make this a little clearer. If the employer does not have work or it shuts down its business as a result of the government quarantine or order or other circumstances related to the coronavirus, there is no paid sick leave entitlement. There is just a but-for test, and the regulations now issued by the Department of Labor makes it clear that only individuals who are subject to federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order, and because of that, they are unable to work or telework with work that is otherwise available to the employer, they're then entitled to leave under this number one reason. Put another way, if but for being subject to this government order, the individual would be able to work or telework because there is available work to be done, then the individual is entitled to reason number one, paid sick leave. Reason number two, if the employee is unable to work or telework because he or she has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine, again, not somebody who just self-quarantines himself or herself, perhaps because they're afraid of contracting the coronavirus. Reason two is you are advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine, and because of that, you are unable to work or telework. Reason number three under the PSL, you are experiencing symptoms and seeking medical diagnosis, and during that time, you're unable to work or telework. Again, to be clear, not just because you're experiencing symptoms, but if you are experiencing symptoms and you need to take the time to seek medical diagnosis during that period of time and you are rendered unable to work or telework, you are entitled to PSL under reason number three. Reason number four, you as an employee are caring for an individual subject to quarantine or isolation order, or the individual that you're caring for has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine. Essentially like reasons number one or two, but this is not the employee himself or herself. This is an employee who is caring for such an individual. That's reason four. Reason five, the employee is caring for a child whose school or place of care has been closed or that child's child care is unavailable. During that period of time, the employee who is rendered unable to work or telework because of that reason, he or she would be entitled to the paid sick leave. And then reason number six, which really uh, isn't um, much of, a, of an active reason, for lack of a better term, but it's still listed in the regulations, and I don't want to have any confusion because I'm omitting it. But reason number six is if the employee is experiencing any other substantially similar condition that is specified by HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, or the Department of Treasury, or the Department of Labor, then the employee who is rendered unable to work or telework can get paid sick leave. The reason I say it's not really an active reason, because the HHS, the Treasury, the Department of Labor have not identified or issued any guidance for this 
purpose or this reason number six. So it really doesn't come into play. But as I said before, because the new regulations that the Department of Labor did issue on this coronavirus um, package does continue to refer to reason number six, I wanted to continue to refer to it as well. The FMLA amendments, and again, remember, old FMLA still continues to apply, but the FMLA amendments for coronavirus purpose provided an uh, ability to get FMLA leave in a new situation. And it's a situation that virtually mirrors reason number five under the paid sick leave law. So you are entitled to this new FMLA leave if you are, as an employee, unable to work or telework because the employee's child school is closed or the care center is closed or if the employee's child's care provider is unavailable. Again, it mirrors reason number five that I gave you under the PSL. Your question might be, so if it mirrors reason number five, why do we need to have this as an FMLA amendment? Uh, I'll get that uh, to that in a moment when I talk about what the actual leave entitlement is. But for purposes of this question three, what situations trigger the PSL and the FMLA amendments according to the new Department of Labor regulations? I gave you the six that trigger paid sick leave, and I gave you the one that triggers the new FMLA amendments. Question four, how much leave then is the employee entitled to and is it paid? Well, let's start with the PSL, the paid sick leave, and that's going to depend on which of the six reasons leave is taken for. If it's taken for reasons one, two, or three, which again go really to the employee himself or herself, the employee is entitled to a regular rate of pay that is uh, that individual's regular rate of pay for the amount of leave that is given but an employer can cap that payment it can be capped at $511 per day or $5,111 in the aggregate if leave is taken for reasons 4 5 or 6 essentially the reasons other than having to do with the employee himself or herself, if the leave is taken for reasons four, five, or six, the individual must be paid two-thirds that individual's regular rate of pay. That also has a cap, but it's a smaller cap. That cap is $200 per day or $2,000 in the aggregate. How much leave at that pay the individual is entitled to is going to depend on whether the individual is a full-time or a part-time employee. Under the new regs, the Department of Labor is defining a full-time employee as anyone who is scheduled for 40 hours a week. Basically, everyone else is not full-time and is considered part-time for this purpose. So a full-time employee is entitled to up to 80 hours of leave, up to 80 hours of leave, with the payment and caps that I just mentioned, depending on the reason for leave. Someone who is not included in the definition of full-time because they are a part-time employee is entitled to leave in an amount equal to the average number of hours that the individual works over a two-week period. And then once you get that amount, again, the same payment and cap requirements uh, apply depending on what the PSL reason is. Going to the FMLA, and remember the FMLA amendment only applies 
In a situation where the employee's child's school or care center is closed or the employee's child's care provider is unavailable, the FMLA entitlement is 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Now, unlike the other FMLA reasons where all of it is unpaid leave, here under the coronavirus amendments, the Department of Labor through Congress is providing for certain pay for that FMLA reason. So let's look at the 12-week entitlement. For the first two weeks, the first two weeks of the 12 weeks, it is unpaid. Unless, unless you are able to be using PSL reason number five, in which case you can use that PSL payment for the first two weeks of FMLA leave. You also, as an employee, are allowed to elect to use, or if you are a company, you can require that the employee substitute accrued paid time off under the company's policy just for those two weeks. So again, there's 12 weeks for the new FMLA entitlement. With regard to the first two weeks, it is unpaid unless you have one of two situations. One, if you are able to substitute the pay that you could get under PSL, reason number five, or if you elect or if the company requires you to substitute accrued PTO for those first two weeks. Otherwise, the first two weeks under the FMLA amendments are unpaid, which then leaves us with 10, the remaining 10 of the 12 FMLA weeks. For those last 10 weeks, the uh, individual is entitled to two-thirds of his or her regular pay with a cap. It's a little bit of a different cap. It's a cap of $200 per day and a cap of $10,000 in the aggregate. Now, you cannot, for those last 10 weeks, substitute PTO that is uh, has been uh, earned under a company policy, but you can use some of it to supplement the extra one-third of your regular pay that you're not getting if, and it's a big if, if both the company and the employee agree. So again, to summarize, the FMLA, 12 weeks. The first two weeks of the FMLA amendment is not paid unless you are able to use PSL payments or if you elect or are required to substitute accrued PTO during those first two weeks. The last 10 weeks of the FMLA 12-week period is paid at two-thirds of the individual's regular pay subject to a cap unless both sides, the company and the employee, agree to supplement, add to that two-thirds of pay to give the additional one-third pay based on accrued PTO to give 100% of pay for those last 10 weeks. Huh, it's a lot to digest, so we're going to take a quick break here so we can breathe for a moment. Okay, question number five. I talked about this um, briefly in response to the last question, but what is the impact of existing time off policies by the employer on this new federal legislation, whether PSL or FMLA? It's important to understand that these new federal rights are in addition, in addition to rights already given by companies under their pre-existing policies. They are also in addition to, not in lieu of, but in addition to any rights that exist under a collective bargaining agreement for your unionized workforce. Question number six, can an employee take intermittent leave 
for these various reasons that uh, the Department of Labor is providing under its regulations. Again, it's going to depend on where the individual is working and what is being requested. And I assume that all of you know what intermittent leave is, but for those who don't, intermittent leave simply refers to leave that is not taken consecutively. In other words, we don't start our leave and then just continue until it has been exhausted. It is used intermittently. So I might start my leave today. Tomorrow I don't need leave, but in two days I continue to use leave from my leave bank. It's used intermittently. So the question number six is, can an employee take intermittent leave like it can in some cases under old FMLA rules or previously and continuing to exist FMLA rules, can an employee take intermittent leave under these new federal rules? Here are some points to keep in mind. It can only be done if both the employer and the employee agree. Can't have an employer require it. Can't have an employee unilaterally decide to take it. Intermittent leave can only be done if both the employer and the employee agree. And now it's going to depend on where the employee is working. If the employee is continuing to report to the physical work site, the office, the facility, that may be because you are running an essential business, or maybe we are in a period in some weeks, some months, where the stay-at-home has been lifted and some of these employees are able to report to work. So when an employee reports to the work site as part of his or her work, if the reason for the leave is that the child's school is closed or the health care is unavailable. An employee can take intermittent leave in any increment that is agreed to by both the employer and the employee. Again, keep in mind what I just said. That is only if we're talking about PSL reason number five or the FMLA amendment reason. In those cases, while the employee is reporting to the work site or the office or the facility, the employee can take intermittent leave in any increment agreed by both parties. However, you cannot take leave intermittently if the leave reason is PSL reasons 1 through 4 or number 6 and the employee is reporting to his or her web work site. Now, if the employee is not reporting to a work site but is teleworking, then any of the reasons under the PSL or the FMLA can be taken intermittently if both sides agree, and it can be taken in any increment of time. Question number seven. What notice does uh, an employee have to give to utilize PSL or the FMLA under the Department of Labor's new regulations. So I'm going to answer this question both in the sense of the timing as well as in the content. Before I do that, I want to start off with a real important threshold issue. If you were to take the time and review the Department of Labor's new regulations, you would see the word flexibility used a lot, both in the regulations and in the commentary to the regulations. The reason for that is because the Department of Labor recognizes the obvious, that we are in a unique set of circumstances, a virtually unprecedented set of circumstances. So the Department of Labor is really trying to have companies not be as strict, not be as inflexible as maybe they have been and tend to be prior to this coronavirus situation. 
because there are some realities here. When we're talking about requiring documentation from healthcare providers or other types of medical-related information, those on the front line of physicians' offices, hospitals, etc., are quite inundated right now. So it may take a little bit longer for healthcare providers to be able to give employees doctor's notes or other types of certifications to then be handed over to the employer. So we're not suggesting that employees don't have obligations here, but what I think the Department of Labor's new regulations and the commentary state is that employers should use a little bit of common sense, be as flexible as they can be, and understand the realities to the situation we're dealing with. So let's go back to this question seven. What notice does an employee have to give? From a timing standpoint, except for PSL reason number five and the FMLA reason, which is, again, child school has closed, child care provider is unavailable. Except for that reason, an employer can require an employee to follow reasonable notice procedures only after the first workday for which the employee takes leave. In other words, you cannot require notice in advance. And keeping in mind this, we have to be somewhat flexible premise if no notice is given by the employee, the company really should think twice before being trigger happy and automatically disciplining or terminating that individual. The new regulations suggest that an employer should give notice to cure. In other words, give notice to the employee that they failed to provide adequate notice and give that employee an opportunity to cure that defect. When it comes to Reason number five under the PSL or the FMLA reason, an employee is required to give notice of the need for that leave as soon as practicable. Not a lot of definiteness there, but that's what the regs say. And again, if no notice is given even under that reason, employers, rather than just disciplining and terminating automatically, should give notice and an opportunity to cure the defect. In terms of content, the new Department of Labor regulations are fairly specific on this as well. Generally, an employer is allowed to uh, get and take oral notice from an employee that leave is needed. You should not be requiring that employees provide written notice, otherwise they don't get leave. But sufficient information should be given to the company for the company to determine whether the requested leave is covered. And for generally all of the reasons under the PSL or under the FMLA, this is the only information that you as a company are allowed to require from your employee. The employee's name, the date for which leave is requested, the qualifying reason that leave is being requested, and a statement that the employee is unable to work or telework because of that qualified reason. Now, depending on the reason that's being requested, there is additional information on top of those four items that can be requested. If the reason is PSL number one, you can also require that the employee provide the name of the government entity that has issued the um, quarantine or isolation order. If the reason is PSL number two, on top of those four basic areas, you can also require that the employee provide the name of the healthcare provider who advised the employee to self-quarantine. 
If the reason is PSL number three, in addition to the four basic items, you can also require that the employee provide either the name of the government entity or the name of the healthcare provider um, that uh, is applicable. If it is PSL number five or the FMLA reason dealing with a child school being closed or health uh, or, or child care provider being unavailable, in addition to the four reasons that I gave you, you can also require that the employee provide the name of the son or daughter covered, the name of the school or the care provider that closed or is unavailable, and a representation by the employee that there is no suitable person other than the employee who could be caring for the son or the daughter during the period of the requested leave. That's it in terms of documentation. Question number eight. Do we have to maintain health care coverage for the individuals on leave? Somewhat of a simple answer. During the time that the uh, employee is out on paid sick leave or FMLA leave under this new coronavirus uh, set of regulations, the answer is yes. The company must maintain the employee's coverage under any group health plan under the same conditions as coverage would have been provided if the employee was not on leave. There are a couple of other points that the new regulations make clear. You are, as a company, certainly still allowed to otherwise change or modify your plans if it applies to everybody. An employee still can be made responsible for paying his or her portion toward the premium, even while on PSL or FMLA amendment leave. An interesting wrinkle in the new regs, though, if the employee decides not to retain coverage during the leave period, maybe it's because he or she doesn't want to continue to pay uh, the premium portion, then the employee can be reinstated to the health plan after returning from leave without any additional qualifying period. And that leads nicely into question number nine. Do you have to reinstate the employee after the PSL or the FMLA leave is over? The answer to that is yes as well. After the coronavirus legislation PSL or FMLA leave, the employee has a right to be restored to the same or an equivalent position. There are a couple of exceptions. Exception number one, if the employee would have otherwise been laid off and not employed at the time of the restoration, that employee does not have to be restored. You do want to be careful, though, that you are documenting and have real supportable, legitimate business reasons why that individual, either alone or together with a group, with a group would have been laid off anyway, even were it not for the leave that was taken. Key employees, as that term is defined by um, already existing FMLA provisions, if the individual is a key employee, then the individual is not entitled to this benefit. Also, there is a smaller business exemption to this job restoration provision. That is, if your company has fewer than 25 employees and you meet certain factors, you would not necessarily have to provide job restoration to the particular employee on leave at that time. And finally, we get to question number 10 of my 10 questions uh, coming out of the brand new Department of Labor regulations on the federal coronavirus 
Laws, what records have to be kept by the company? Here are the rules. So employers are required to retain all documents related to the PSL or the FMLA leaves for a period of four years, four years, regardless of whether a particular leave request was granted or denied. If oral statements, oral information is provided by an employee, there is now an obligation on employers to document that oral information and maintain those documents for the same four years. And also uh, in here, uh, if you are intending to, may intend to, may want to claim the IRS tax credits that uh, are what is funding this leave entitlement under the federal coronavirus legislation, you as the company must keep certain documents for four years that would justify and substantiate the tax credits that you are claiming. So there are the 10 questions. Uh, as I said, the Department of Labor has finally issued new regulations to put in place how they're going to be implementing and interpreting uh, Congress's federal PSL and FMLA new requirements. I hope I've answered all of your questions. Uh, if not, uh, you can also go to my firm's website. As I've said before, Cozen O'Connor has created a coronavirus task force. If you go to Cozen.com, you will see a banner that refers to the task force. If you click on that, there's all kinds of great material, guidance, e-alerts, link to, links to other resources. You can also continue to subscribe and listen to this very podcast where I will continue to try to keep you updated whenever there's a breaking development on all things coronavirus, and I will try to sum it up in a way that is hopefully understandable to everybody. So that's it for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Hope you stay safe, healthy, and relatively happy under these circumstances. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.